welcome to the Black Women's Wellness Podcast. I'm Deja Love, your host. And this is a podcast where we amplify Black women's voices as we discuss the many different ways we manage stress and maintain our well-being. We want to ensure that all Black women live productive, meaningful, and robust lives that are unhinged by stress. The goal of this podcast is not to perpetuate the myth of perfection, but to show progress by engaging in conversations with many different Black women and hear their stories on how they maintain their wellness amidst stress. This is an authentic podcast by authentic women. We are so excited that you are listening and you followed and liked us and are tuned into the episode. So sit back, listen, comment, and share this podcast. We're going to get right into today's episode, which our topic as we're celebrating for the month of October is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. And today, specifically how Black women caregivers can center their own wellness. Um, I'm always excited to have guests here and so, so happy to have you here, Taylor Nelson. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, wonderful. We're happy to have you. Uh, And we, our tradition is we ask every guest this first question. And the question is, you're a busy young professional navigating different work cultures. You're a family member. You're an active community member among the many other leadership roles that you have. How do you prioritize your own wellness and your energetic alignment amidst all of the demands in life? Yeah, I, I'm really big on self-care and I have a really robust self-care routine. And it actually started a few years ago. Um, a therapist of mine, she came to me in the midst of when I was caretaking. Mm-hmm. And she really came to me and she helped me and she said, I want you to create a self-care resume. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And she came and she said, basically, I want you to approach it the same way you would, you know, a professional resume Mm-hmm. include your skills, include your experience, include your involvement, all that good stuff, but just swap out the information for what you do for yourself that's self-care related. So I said, mm-hmm. okay, so that was my homework for the week. And I went home and I just put down what I thought was self-care. And then at our next session, she looked at me and she said, what is this? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, this is my self-care resume. And she said, no, this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with what you do for other people. So she told me to redo it and to really practice. And she said, this means that we need more work for you to do for yourself. And that honestly, her checking me in that way, honestly helped me to understand that I need to make more time for myself Mm -hmm. and that I need to add more to my resume for my self-care. And Mm -hmm. now I have a whole routine. (laughs) My self-care resume is very filled. Mm -hmm. And what's included in that, I journal, if not every day, every other day. Um, prayer is really big for me. I have a close relationship with God. Me and him are like this. So I pray, if not every day, every hour, um, spending time in nature and making sure that I get fresh air and that I'm moving my body. And I have a dance background. So moving my body through dance or yoga are both extremely important to me. Um, spending time with friends, but also spending time with myself because I'm the type of person who can get overwhelmed really easily with social interactions and just I have a short social battery sometimes so (laughs) having time with myself and just solo dates and things of that nature so that's my whole wellness check for me 
Oh, thank you for sharing that, Taylor. I love that. A self-care resume. That's that crazy? so interesting. Wow. And it's so it, I love how your therapist, you know, they came back and were like, no, 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 this is what you're doing for other people. That's so interesting. What was that like when you're receiving that initial feedback? Where and I think many of us, we we pour and we give so much, especially as black women. What was your initial response when you're like, but this is self-care, you know, she had to really challenge you to say, no, that's not. Mm-mm. I literally asked her, well, what, what do you mean? Like what mm-hmm. is missing? Because, and I think just what you said, we're so used to helping other people and giving so much of ourselves and acts of service is my love language. And I feel mm-hmm. as though by giving to others, I'm serving myself because it makes me feel good, but that's mm-hmm. not the same thing. And she had mm-hmm. to break that down to me that you can still help other people you can still serve you could still you know do kind things for other people but when it's taking from yourself and you're pouring from an empty cup mm. how good are you really mm. and she really just checked mm. me on it and I was like oh man you got me like <laughs> yeah. so I really just had to take a step back and realize you know what do I do for Taylor and then mm. I just started this whole journey of figuring out what can I do to pour into myself Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, you, you're you so in tune, you know, your love language. And I think so many of us, we, you know, we get our energy from other people. And your therapist made such a good point. It's a both and. It's that's great that you get energy from other people. And that cannot be your own fulfillment, and your own energetic alignment. That's Wow, that's such a good lesson because I think sometimes we're like, oh, I'm community service, I'm supporting. And that's great. That's in tandem with, like you said, your self-care resume. Right. Yep. She checked me real good. That's good. You have a good therapist. I do. (laughs) Great. That is wonderful. Um, And so as we're talking about the topic here in October, Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, Tell us, why is this month so special to you? Yeah, so um, in January 2020, yeah, January 2020, my mom was diagnosed with stage three ovarian cancer. And I was sophomore in college at the time, 19 years old, super young. Um, and she had cancer for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then recently, a year ago, she passed away as a result of the cancer. So on September 13th, 2022, she passed away. And then her birthday was also two days later. So the whole month of ovarian cancer awareness month is connected to my mom and just has a super special meaning for me. Mm, oh, wow. I'm so sorry mm-hmm. to hear that. And I, I just so appreciate you, Taylor, one, just sharing that. I mean, this is still very recent. So you're still going through the grief journey that, I mean, it's, there's not a, a finite end to it. It's, it's very much the ebbs and the flows. So you just being yeah. here and sharing, it's just so meaningful because many other women will have, will hear this and they will really connect with you. And, and especially, I mean, as you talk about your self-care, like no one would know. I mean, you're just so bright and shiny and the self-care <laughs> resume, but to hear, you know, this, recent I mean that I I just want to hold space I don't want to just gloss over that so I really honor you and appreciate you sharing that and it's so amazing that this now it seems like it's it's turning into a life passion for you of trying to raise awareness did before your mother passed away and, and developed cancer was this on your radar was this something that 
you, you know, kind of had a personal interest in? No, not at all, honestly. And I had no idea about how in-depth ovarian cancer goes and how it relates to the Black community and Black women. And Mm. my mom was a nurse. She was a registered nurse Mm. for like over 25 years. So I was always, you know, in a space of healthcare and medicine and things like that. So I always had an awareness of various illnesses such as cancer. And there's been family members who have cancer before in my family, but never ovarian cancer. Mm. Um, And even when, you know, my mom first got diagnosed and had early signs and detection and things like that, the signs that she were was looking at, I thought were just regular. I thought mm. it was like gas pains. I thought, mm. it was, you know, weight gain just because. But come to find out it was all connected to ovarian cancer. So it was such a huge learning lesson and a big mm. curve because it was so new to me. Um, but now, like you said, it is something that I'm really forceful about to a educate myself more on but also mm. just advocate more for it um especially out of respect for my mom just keep that right. going for her and in her honor so yeah right oh wow and that's so interesting to hear you know your mom was a nurse for for a few decades mm. how is that I mean as she is now the nurse becomes the patient I mean, what was, was she actively as a nurse or was she retired when she was diagnosed? She was active. Oh, so she was okay. still an active nurse when she first got diagnosed. And then she retired April, 2022. So like six months prior to her passing. Okay. So, so a majority of her diagnosis, she was still a nurse. And also this was in the midst of COVID. Mm, um, yeah. So it was just like a crazy time, but yeah, she was still a nurse, still going. And then I were saying her becoming the patient was so interesting because my mom, she knew her stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was not afraid to let you know that she knew her stuff. Right. Um, and it's really interesting to see people in that position to, you know, go through all these things. And she had chemo and mm. had to do so many adjustments and to see her take the step back because mm. she's so used to doing for others and so right. being selfless and caring for other people to see her take a step back and to be someone who needed to be served was such an interesting thing to watch. And I can only imagine how it was for her to, you know, be on the receiving end of that. Mm-hmm. But then for me as her child to step in, to really step up and to help her was really interesting to see, but also, you know, an honor to do as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was really interesting to go through that. Mm-hmm. What was, when you say it was interesting to see your mom as a nurse, become a patient what were some of the things that were interesting to you about that yeah seeing her ask for help I've Mm -hmm. never seen my mom ask for help from nobody okay (laughs) growing up um she was just that type of person that and I think it's also attributed to the fact that as kids and just growing up when you have parents I feel like so often we view them as a superhero Mm -hmm. you know and I think my mom was my superwoman in that sense and Mm -hmm. to see her in a more of a human way rather than a superhero way was really crazy because we think that they're so resistant to pain and to mm. needing anything or needing anyone and they could just take over the world and she could but at the same time she was a human being who needed help yeah and to see her ask for help was such a crazy experience because I've, I've never seen her do that before I've always seen her be the person that people go to when they need help and when they need service of any kind so Mm -hmm. seeing her ask for help seeing her go through you know the symptoms of chemotherapy was also Mm -hmm. interesting and to see her need you know 
in the later stages of her diagnosis when she was in hospice care and needing a hospice nurse herself, like needing a nurse for a nurse. Mm-hmm. It's just so mm-hmm. crazy to witness. Um, yeah, I think seeing her in a human way and have to mm-hmm. service from other people was probably the most interesting part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where when she, you know, as you mentioned, the different nurses, as I'm sure they they would find out that she was a nurse, was her care a little different? Because, you know, they <laughs> yeah. imagine. And she never told them until oh, okay. on. So no one really knew. No one up until she was in hospice care knew that she was a nurse. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting as well to see that once they did find out her profession, just like the little adjustments that people would do mm. or even, and even before I think people caught on to it because they would be telling her her medication, for example, and she would be like, Oh, I know what that is. And she would mm-hmm. repeat it back or she would say a different name for it mm-hmm. and things like that. So I think over time people assumed that she had some type of profession, you know, in the healthcare system. And then I, I remember when she was in hospice in the hospital at first, prior to coming to our home, she it was just, you know, going through different changes and the doctors kept coming in, explaining what's going on. And she said, listen, I'm a nurse. I know what this is. I know what you're doing to me. I know what medication you gave me yesterday. And everyone was just like, whoa, like, where were you a nurse? You know, where did you work? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, after you had that distinction, people kind of <laughs> up their game a little bit <laughs> because yeah. you knew that you have someone here who knows what's going on. So right. it's very interesting to see that distinction come to play. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing that, I mean, your mom was a nurse just so that she can hold folks accountable, you know, and she could call them out if they were giving her subpar care. Mm-hmm. She, I mean, she was a decorated nurse, so she could challenged on that that had to have been really interesting like you said to see and witness yeah and it made me proud too you know Mm -hmm. be a woman who is my mom but who's also just a black woman in medicine knows what she's talking about and also Mm -hmm. with the circumstances you know she's on medication herself you know she's losing weight she's losing all these other things she's going through these challenges and also facing and preparing for what's to come and she has the strength and the power to stick up for herself and be like, no, like, this is what needs to happen. This is what, you know, and I just, I was in awe of just her strength and her capability to still articulate herself so powerfully and eloquently in the Mm -hmm. midst of such chaos and a relatively, you know, sad situation. So I was proud of her. I was like, well, you know, she's losing her hair or she may be losing weight, but she did not lose her mind. And that is so important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it was great to see Oh, that's amazing. Dude, what was your mom's experience with her colleagues? Because you mentioned she was working up until that point. So did her colleagues know about, because I would, it seems like she would have to maybe have different shifts for her own treatment and her own medical appointments. Yeah, they definitely were aware um, for that very reason. And then especially coworkers that she was very close with mm-hmm. knew from the beginning. Um, some of them went to her chemo, her first chemotherapy appointment, mm-hmm. things like that. So they they were very privy to what was going on. And especially in the midst of COVID, she mm-hmm. was out of work for, I want to say, the first six or seven months of her diagnosis because she was going through rapid chemotherapy. But mm-hmm. then when she was cleared to go back, she, you know, she couldn't work with the with the um COVID patients, she couldn't mm-hmm. work with certain patients. So I think that took a hit on her a little bit because mm-hmm. my mom was the type of person who just wanted to help everybody. Yeah. Especially during that time in the pandemic, you know, hospitals were so understaffed and just going through all these crazy changes. And I think she just had this eagerness to want to help, but she mm-hmm. 
because of her own health concerns. Um, but yeah, her coworkers were extremely helpful. And even all the way down to this, her last few days, they were helpful, not only as a nurse, but as a friend. And just mm. that was really special for my mom. Um, but yeah, they're, they're the best. And I still am in contact with them to this day and have that relationship oh, wow. with them now. So yeah, it's cool. And even at my mom, we had a, a little memorial service in her honor after mm. she passed. All the nurses showed up in their scrubs. Oh, I like that. Little nurse gang in the corner. It was so <laughs> beautiful to see all the blue scrubs and just all of them showing so much love and so much support to her and to our family. So, yeah. Oh, that's special. That's so special. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's amazing. Uh, and I, you know, caretaking, which we'll talk more of, but it is a massive undertaking that I think people, even just the words caretaking, minimizes how much of a toll it takes emotionally, mentally, and physically. So how, you know, and and I guess this is a two-part question, as you mentioned at the start that you have your therapist recommended a self-care resume. Now, was that before your mom's diagnosis and treatment? I wonder if that's a recent thing, but during the caretaking phase of your mom, like how were you able to have the emotional support, maintain a positive outlook, as well as your own wellness, so that, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, it would be impossible to pour from an empty cup and especially to support your mom during this time. Yeah, the the self-care resume came around the same time that my mom was diagnosed. Okay. Because since it was around COVID, I had to go home school and I did virtual school for the first time in the middle of the pandemic so it all happened pretty much at the same time and I told my therapist I was like look like I'm in the house for god knows how long my mom is going through what she's going through and it was just my mom and I in the home at the time so I was like okay like something's gotta give like I need Mm -hmm. help you know and that's when I sought sought out therapy and she told me right away she's like look we need to get this self-care resume going Mm -hmm. figure this out we need you to have the resources that you need And then to the point about what I did to maintain just my positive outlook and just my sanity, honestly, I feel like my mom did a really good job at setting the tone from the beginning of how Mm -hmm. she wanted to go through this. And I think I was always really aware and respectful of like, what's the best way I can support you? And that will help me to figure out, you know, where I fall into this. And she Mm -hmm. told me from the beginning, she said, listen, I'm living with cancer. I'm not dying from cancer. Mm -hmm. I said okay and as soon as she said that it kind of did a switch with my mindset of like okay like this is a very sad and new experience for me but Mm -hmm. my mom's still alive she still Mm -hmm. has so much life so much Mm -hmm. so much joy within her what can I do to make this an easier experience for both me and for her Mm -hmm. and I think in the midst of caretaking even on the difficult days because it is super challenging mentally and physically I think I just found the good in all things and I Mm. found ways to laugh with her. I found ways to connect with her deeper. I found ways to get her out the house and to learn new things. And I really think I took advantage of that time because there were so many moments where my mom and I couldn't, you know, do certain things because I was away at college or because she was busy with work schedules and Mm. things like that. But to be her caretaker and to spend that intimate time with her, I think I just found the moments to kind of, build off of that and bond with her more and also I think we had this really cool connection with each other and I told her I was like listen like we're gonna get through this we're gonna get through this together we're gonna make the best of it and even down to her final days we were laughing 
We were mm-hmm. talking. One day we were in the hospital. We had Sex and the City on the TV. <laughs> My mom was talking about margaritas with salt on the rim. <laughs> like we just, you know, it's like things are rough and life is lifing right now, but we're going to make the best of it and we're going to smile through it. And one of my favorite sayings is that, you know, we're all just walking each other home. Mm. And I think I I find myself really lucky and really blessed to know that I walked my mom home and mm. that I knew where she was going. And home for me is heaven and home with me is anywhere that God is, it is and resides. And I think knowing that I made sure that she got there safely and then I walked her there and the same with my siblings, you know, we all walked our mom home. And I felt really honored to know that I did that. And I think that just kept me going. Um, And also just my faith. Like, I don't think I could have gotten through any of this without my faith and without prayer and without Mm -hmm. my relationship with God. And sometimes you just have to let go of that control and just trust. Mm. That's honestly the hardest part sometimes. Yeah. You just want to control everything and yeah. fix and just make her better. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's not how life works all the time. So learning to lean into the lack of control, lean mm. into the trust was the best thing for me mentally because at that point I was like, you know what? It's not in my hands, it's in his. Mm. I know where she's going. If she does leave me in the physical world, I know mm. where she's going and she's in the best hands possible. So that's just how I viewed it at the time. And still today, I think that's what keeps me relatively positive and sane and calm. It's just knowing where she's at. Right. And what she's doing. Like she's watching me, you know, and I told her yeah. even in those last few days when, you know, she was getting a little bit emotional because she knew what the possibility was leading to. Mm. I told her, I was like, you got the best seat in the house. Like you get to watch <laughs> me, you get to mm-hmm. help me, you get to have a hand and navigate different aspects of my life. So it's like, there's joy in it all, you know, and I think mm. having that mentality of going home and knowing that I'll see her one day and that this life isn't owed to any of us and that mm. we're all just passing through and that we all have to end up somewhere eventually, mm. um, I think really helps me a lot. Wow. Wow. That That's, I'm, I'm taking it all <laughs> in and I laugh, <laughs> not laughing, but that, that is powerful, Taylor. I, I just... Your your whole paradigm of a really challenging situation, not just any cancer diagnosis, but during a pandemic where healthcare was just really it's inherently fragmented, but was even more so because of just being understaffed. And your ability to just you like you said, you were in the hospital with your mom laughing and joking. I mean, I think many people will hear this and they will say, How? Was she able to do that? And just even as you speak of it, it's just, it's so energetically lifted. It's not somber. I mean, that that's really powerful. And I mean, I, even me personally, I'm like, wow. Because, you know, sometimes in the world today, I can I can become a negative Nancy with all the things going on. And it, that's just really amazing. I mean, you've answered the questions. There's no question. I'm just <laughs> expressing like that's, that's really amazing. I think many of us, we struggle with what we see with all that's going on to try to maintain a higher vibration. And it sounds like your mom really instilled that in you very early on, way before this, but very early on. Yeah, for sure. I think she was just the perfect example of what love looks like. And also just the perfect example of what being a woman of love looks like. So mm-hmm. having that, that representation growing up and also my mom was a single mother and, 
you know, did all these things on her own and to see just how she navigated through those challenging times. Mm. She was always positive. She very rarely complained. She was mm. just a person of like, all right, we just got to keep going. We just got to keep doing this. And I think I've learned from that. And I think mm. I've also learned from, you know, her downfalls as well. You know, she wasn't the best at taking breaks. She mm. wasn't the best at asking for help. Um, and I think learning from the good and, you know, the not so good aspects, it's just helped me to navigate within my own challenges mm-hmm. with my mom and to understand that, you know, life happens to all of us and it, not, it happens to us, not for us and all these things and understanding that it gets better. You know, everything mm-hmm. temporary, everything happens for our greater good. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow, you have such a positive outlook. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you re- that's really amazing. And what you were talking about earlier about really the challenge for many people is releasing that control is we want the control, especially as you know, where you and I are in DC and it's such a controlling environment where people think that they have control based on their pedigree, where they come from, their jobs, all those things. How were you able to really just release that attachment? Because that's what it sounds like. Release that attachment of physically wanting your mom present and just saying, this is not going the way we thought, you know, as your mom said, I am living with cancer, not dying from cancer. And then and it took a different turn. Like, how are you able to do to just release that control? I mean, you, you had no control, but sometimes people will still fight. And so I'm going to get a third opinion. I'm going to ask the Georgetown doctors, oncology, right. you know, all those things. It sounds like you 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 had a radical acceptance. Yeah, I think that's attributed to my faith again, because mm-hmm. I think sometimes we don't realize that our our prayers are being answered because the outcome is not the way that we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But when you look back on it, everything that I've ever prayed for has always come into fruition, even mm-hmm. in the case of my mom, because I, there, especially when it was coming down to the last few days and things were just getting, you know, a little chaotic. And you're just seeing someone that you love so much and care about just slowly leave you. And it's mm-hmm. a really interesting place to be in. And I think I remember distinctly being at my home because that's where my mom completed hospice care. Mm-hmm. And just seeing her, you know, go through all of these things prior to leaving us in the physical world. And I was just like, God, just take her. You know, mm-hmm. like if that's if that is your will, just take her. If it is your will to take her out of suffering. That is what I want. You know, my mm. main prayer was, I don't want my mom to suffer. I want her to be at peace. Mm. I remember praying that for the five days that she was in hospice, I said, Lord, just take her out of suffering and bring her to peace. Mm. And he answered that prayer. And, you know, people can take that for however, they, however way they want. But for mm. me, I looked at it as God heard me praying. He saw the condition that my mom was in and he took her out of that and brought her to a better place. And I feel like there were so many signs and little nuances throughout her entire diagnosis that that was so evident to me that prayers are being answered. Mm. And, you know, of course, I would love my mom to be here with me in the physical world. But I know that where she's at, she's never going to suffer again, Mm. She'll never be in pain again, Mm. She'll never have any of these aches and pains and any of these responsibilities ever again and yeah. I'm happy she's probably dancing probably mm-hmm. working, just living her best life up there you know mm-hmm. and knowing and having the understanding that prayers get answered in the way that they're intended to be not in the way that we want them to be right me to release that control a lot because I was like you know what 
things are going to work out the way that God wants them to. My mm-hmm. prayers are going to be answered the way they're supposed to be. So why am I going crazy and literally running laps around my head yeah, to figure yeah. out how I can control this? So, yeah. Mm, yeah, no, I, I love that. And and I, w- with your mom being a nurse, and as you mentioned, you know, it was really challenging in those last few days when she had the awareness of, okay, this is what's happening. I'm transitioning. What was that like for your mom as a nurse? With Because I wonder, I mean, I feel like she had to have probably known because she's a clinician. And so she knew when maybe the chemo or radiation wasn't working. And then, you know, the next phase is, how does she make peace with that? Yeah, I think she made peace with it really early on. Really? She honestly accepted it earlier than any of us, like any family mm-hmm. member. Um, and I remember we were in the hospital. It was just the two of us. And I spent the night with her. And we were like cuddled up in the bed watching mm-hmm. TV. And we just had a really open and candid conversation about death, about mm-hmm. different possibilities. And she had the most positive outlook on it. And mm-hmm. I have a very positive outlook on death as well. So it was just a really beautiful conversation that we had about, you know, I'm going to be up there dancing and she was mm-hmm. what she's going to see up there and just all these beautiful things. So that when it, we were in the final days at mm-hmm. our house and, you know, things were happening, happening really rapidly, she was so open and just ready mm-hmm. to go whenever God was ready to take her. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped all of us as well. Yeah. It happened, but just to know that she was okay with it and that she right. was to go whenever she was meant to. And also as a nurse, she, she knew what was going on more than the nurses, her own hospice nurse, yeah, yeah. which was really funny. <laughs> but um, I think also made her feel more comfortable too, to know like, Oh, I know what this is. I know what's going on. Right. Um, right. But yeah, it was a, it was great to to be exposed to that and to know mm-hmm. that she has such a positive view on the whole thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. That um, just that she instilled in you and your siblings just that death is a process of life. That it's not the end. And and I I just I love that because sometimes we we want to hold on and it's like no we don't but it's as you're saying we cannot control it and knowing that it's a part of our our life journey that it's just one phase transitioning into a spiritual realm that that's just really beautiful I I really thank you for sharing that that's that's amazing and I want to shift a little bit as we talked about your experience, you know, care taken for your mom, what do you wish you could see? Because unfortunately, not all caretakers have this positive experience that you've had. And is there legislation policy or what? Because there are many caretakers that are challenged, that don't have, like you are so amazingly blessed. You had a therapist during this time. And there are many caretakers that don't access the services for many reasons, because we still don't make therapy accessible, all, you know, all the reasons that we won't get into. But what do you think could help, you know, especially as we're celebrating Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month? And I'm sure there are millions of caretakers and they are not having the same experience. What, what do you wish could happen so that other people could have a very positive, uplifting experience that you and your mom had? Yeah, I wish that we could have more communities that are geared mm-hmm. towards caretakers specifically, because I feel as though it takes a village, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like we we see that a lot with children. We see that a lot with families and family systems. But I feel like sometimes we don't see that a lot within the medical profession or within caregivers and things like that. And 
sometimes you have a whole team. And I know for me, we had not only myself, but my siblings, we had a social worker that we were working with. We had the mm-hmm. hospice nurse that we were working with. I had a therapist that I was working with for my for myself. And it's just, you, you need so many people to help mm-hmm. you. And I feel like sometimes that community and that sense of tribe is lacking within that community. And mm-hmm. also just the conversation, I feel like is so overlooked about mm-hmm. caretakers and just about different types of caretakers. You know, mm-hmm. I know for myself, I was 19 at the time and fast forward now I'm 23 and to be so young, to have gone to college, to have, you know, being a young adult, you don't really see a lot or don't really hear about a lot of stories from the perspective of a young adult who is a caretaker. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, just having that acknowledgement and understanding that sometimes our resources need to be tweaked depending on the person and where that person is in their own life. And I, I, I say that all the time because I feel like when you think about a caretaker, sometimes there's a certain image that we have. Right. It's true. You know, and it's like, it's not a one size shoe fits all type of situation. You know, I know that from my own experience. I don't think I look like the typical caretaker that we think about. Yeah. And I feel like that just says a lot that we just need to kind of tweak our system and tweak and understand where those gaps lie and have that conversation about what's the best way that we can offer help and support the community to caretakers of all ages and all phases of life. Mm, yeah oh definitely that's such a good point you bring up a really good point because I think especially you as a a Gen Z I think there are many more but we think in our brains like caretaker there's a stereotypical association you're a baby boomer you're a Gen Xer you don't think a Gen Z would be caretaking but we know that there are many Gen Z caretakers and a lot of the resources like you said are not really tailored for a younger audience. That's a really great point. I think it's as we're seeing the baby boomer Gen Xers aging and having more chronic conditions, it, it's going to grow. There will be many millions of more younger caretakers that may not know, as you said, the community that you can utilize a social worker to really help coordinate all the care and the resources and all the other supports. Yeah, exactly. So I am hopeful that things will change in that direction and that more resources can be offered for all different types of caretakers. Yeah. Yeah. So I have hope. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And your hope is infectious. So we have hope as well. (laughs) (laughs) How has this experience caretaken for your mom and especially the platform that you're amplifying that we need to have a, a, a more inclusive understanding of caretaking How has that informed you professionally? We talked a lot about personally and how, you know, you're you're rooted spiritually and just your positive outlook. But how do you think that informs the work that you do professionally? Because you're in an adjacent field. Yeah. So I'm currently in healthcare policy. And it's so interesting because prior to when my mom was first diagnosed, I wasn't in this field. I um, had a psychology background. And coming into the healthcare space and the health policy space, I think it honestly just lit a fire under me because mm. I was, I I have a view of just the healthcare system as a whole and the yeah. whole of it. So I can very clearly see where gaps exist, where more research is necessary and things like that. So it's really interesting. And also to see how I have a passion for community work, passion mm. for communities and working with 
black and brown people and to see and to have that personal experience within my own family yeah to now go out in the work field it's like we have so much work to do (laughs) do. so much work to do we still have so far to come but there's still that hope that exists and I think taking from my personal life to my professional life it's just the understanding that you never know what goes on behind closed doors yeah that's true so with a professional lens added onto that it's like okay then what can we do to go into those little nuances of people's lives to really offer help and support where can the re- research grow more where mm-hmm. are those gaps in the literature what can we do within the medical system within the healthcare system as a whole how are we helping these people that actually need help and how are we bringing a voice to the voiceless Mm-hmm. And I think it just makes me want to do more. It makes me eager to do more research, it makes me eager to dive into it more. And I think having had a personal experience, I think gives me gives me more access to things because I have, mm-hmm. you know, both the professional and the personal life and that experience mm-hmm. come together. And I think hopefully I think it helps me to be better equipped to help people because I'm coming from my academic background and my right. background. But I also have lived experience, which is so valuable, you know, yes. sometimes so overlooked. And honestly, lived experience is where it's at as far as getting. Yes, so, yeah, I just I have a fire lit under me and I'm excited to see where it takes me. Honestly, Yeah, yeah, I am, too. That's so exciting. <laughs> I, I always say I feel like you Gen Z's are just you are the hope because you all are <laughs> like challenging the systems that a lot of us millennials have accepted that we think that we've challenged them, but your generation is challenging in a whole new way. And it's just so exciting and really encouraging to see, really. Um, I, I want to also shift again and put on my public health cat here just mm-hmm. a little bit, is that as we're celebrating and recognizing Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, what many people may not know is that According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, that ovarian cancer, it actually it's the second most common gynecologic cancer in the United States. And it causes the most deaths out of any other cancer of women's reproductive system. And what I want to ask you is, given that, is how can we increase our awareness of ovarian cancer, specifically because Black women in particular CDC recommends specific, these really specific diagnostic testing, which is really outside of the standard if you have an OBGYN doing your annual PAP or pelvic exam. CDC's diagnostic recommendations, it's one, it's a rectal vaginal pelvic exam. It's also, it could be a transvaginal ultrasound and then a really specific blood test, the CA-125. How do you think that more Black women can have heightened awareness? Because as, as I talked about, like these diagnostic tests, I had not heard of them. I did a little bit of, and I'm in public health. I had to do a little bit of research and I was not aware that those are specific. And to add to that, I know this is a really layered question, but the pap smear, it does not check for ovarian cancer. That screens for cervical cancer. That's a huge, I think, public health in terms of our communications. That's a disconnect because I think a lot of women think, oh, I've done my pat, my pelvic, I'm good. And that is not the case. So what are your thoughts as you are, you know, burgeoning a health policy expert, what we can do to really increase awareness for Black women? Yeah, there's so much. (laughs) There's so much. (laughs) 
that needs to be done. And I think so many things. So I think it starts with the conversation, but I think in order to get to that point, we need the education behind it, right? And in order to have the education, we need the right people to talk to. Yeah. And that's where it gets a little tricky sometimes because we need our practitioners, we need our providers, we need our experts to really come into play and say, this is what y'all need to know and this is what y'all need to do. But sometimes it's hard to get to that point because I think at least within the Black community and amongst Black women, we have such a fear and such a valid fear within the medical system and within healthcare because mm-hmm. oftentimes our voice is not heard and oftentimes our issues are just diminished and pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other issue to yeah. tap into. But I think that plays a really big role into why, you know, access and why survival rates of ovarian cancer and other types of illnesses are so geared towards the Black community and towards Black women is because that fear is centered there. And in order for us to actually make progress, we need to address that and we need to also understand why that exists. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to take a long time and that, you know, other things need to happen for that to come into fruition. But in the meantime, I just want to encourage Black women to continue to use our voice because mm-hmm. our intuition and that gut feeling is no joke when mm-hmm. it comes to our body and when it comes to early detection. And there's so many signs, you know, there's abdominal pain, there's fatigue, there's rapid weight loss and weight gain and back pain and all these things that are early signs of ovarian cancer, but we just attribute it to different things. But Mm -hmm. I know as a woman myself and in my mom's situation, she knew right away when something was off. Like when we know, we know. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to just trust that feeling and trust that gut intuition more often because Mm -hmm. I personally think nine times out of 10, that's what leads to the early detection and the early signs anyways, when we take the initiative to listen to ourselves and to trust yeah. our bodies. And I think if our practitioners and our providers don't, then we will, and we have mm. to continue to do so. Yeah. And I think also just having the promotion and the awareness of ovarian cancer, because I think so many people don't know about it. So many yeah. people don't know about the awareness month. So many people yeah. know about the signs. So just kind of pushing it out there more often. And there's so many places out there that do amazing research, that have amazing yeah. resources, and that are really doing the work. And I know from my experience, I was in college. I had no idea what ovarian cancer looked like. I had no mm-hmm. idea what was going on. And I was like, I need some help. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the um, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, who do incredible mm-hmm. work with research and also with funding for families and for patients. And it was just a great resource for me to look at when, A, just to educate myself, but also to understand, you know, what's to expect and how can I properly equip myself to help with myself and help with my mom. And I think more people need to take that initiative to go out and to do the research because sometimes we have to do it on our own. You know, if we push it out, if they won't talk about it, sometimes we have to dive into that. But I also ask and look at our practitioners and look at our, you know, I look at our doctors, look at our providers and ask them, you know, how can you best serve your patients so that we can know more about this? Because I feel like female health in particular, sometimes it's very hush hush about certain aspects about it until you're in the situation. And I just, I feel like it's the responsibility of all of our practitioners to really own that and to really take it into their own hands for the health of their patients. So we have so much work to do. (laughs) Yes, we do. We do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I I love that. I mean, and, and it's, you know, you're again, you're in health policy. You know, I, I advocate that there need to be more policies that 
some of these screening and diagnosis tests, tests, insurance should reimburse that. It should be just like how with the Affordable Care Act, a lot of the preventative health measures, like how an annual PAP exam or PAP smear is now, it's it's not, it's free. It's covered and you don't need insurance. You can get that as a woman's wellness exam. The same thing for ovarian cancer. And I don't know if that currently exists, Um, I think that's something that folks are still fighting and advocating for. Yeah, for sure. And just having those ultrasound screenings and things like that, like it's, Mm -hmm. it's necessary in order to have those early detection signs and things like that. And like you were saying, insurance sometimes is not accessible to all of us in the black community. And that's just something that should be unacceptable, but yeah. Yeah. Still have a long way to go. But I think if we just do the work and sometimes just trust ourselves, Mm -hmm. maybe you would get there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I love that. What what are your closing words and what last things do you want to share with our listeners, our audience? I mean, this has been such a great conversation. Yeah, um, I guess I would end it with, with two things. So my mom, she told me when she first got diagnosed, she said, Tay, I want you to live your life and be happy. Mm. Okay, I don't know how I'm going to do that without you, but here we go. But here I am a year later, and I think I would encourage everyone to do as my mom instructed is just live your life and be happy. And mm-hmm. whatever means you have to do so. Um, and also to keep in mind that you never know what someone goes home to, don't know what someone's nights look like, and to just extend kindness as often as frequently as you can. Mm-hmm. So lastly, if you have the privilege of having a mom or a dad or an auntie or a grandma or just someone that you care about, a guardian that you really love, I just encourage you to speak to them as often as you can and to just mm-hmm. give a phone call, be intentional about it, have that mm-hmm. Because like I said, you know, this life isn't old to any of us and time is very fleeting. And I just hope that if you have the privilege to do so, because I've recognized that it is a privilege to just hear someone's voice and make that phone call. Yeah. Just encourage everyone to do so and do it often and yeah. listen to it, love it be present during it and to just take it all in. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Live your life and be happy. Yep. Such good words. <laughs> <laughs> Such good words that your mom left us with. Yeah. Thank you for that. How can folks reach you? I'm sure after listening to this episode, they're going to want to connect with you. What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I would love that. So I'm I'm on LinkedIn under my name, Taylor Nelson. I should pop up, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And then also um, on Instagram, I'm available, Taylor Nelson with two N's underscore. Um, yeah, those are probably the most active on those two socials. But. Okay, that sounds great. Taylor, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. I I just truly appreciate your you being so open and so vulnerable and transparent and really sharing your heart. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Black Women's Wellness Podcast. Continue to check out our upcoming episodes, subscribe, follow, like, and connect with us on our website, thebwwa.com. We want to hear from you. What resonates from this episode for our great conversation with Taylor? Drop us a comment. We are active on Instagram. Our handle is the B-W-W-A-I-N-C. We love engaging with you. So leave us a comment. And until next time, stay well and remember our wellness is infinite.
Take care. Take care.